Hello. Welcome to the new and improved Filmgasm. For those of you who are longtime listeners, first of all, thanks for listening to me drone on about movies for about a year. For you newcomers, my name is Connor Azagari. This is not my first ever podcast episode, but it is the first of my brand new solo series simply called Filmgasm. If you want to listen to the past episodes I've done with Ashley Gorham and Austin Johnson, you can check out my YouTube channel, Filmgasm with a Z, or you can go to filmgasm.com, or you can also check out reviews of thousands of films by either myself, Austin Johnson, or Filmgasm co-founder Caleb Leger, who may be coming back on board soon. More are added every day, and any film from any era is up for grabs. We love everything. Silent film, horror films, new movies, blockbuster, indie film, you name it. If it's out there, we'll watch it, we'll give our two cents, and we'll review it. Well, anyway, the reason I'm doing this, I wanted to start delivering consistent content with this series. I'll, I'll still have Austin along for special guest appearances along the way, but for the most part, this is going to be a one-man band kind of thing from here on out. And I figured I could use this platform as a way to talk about my favorite film genre, horror, and some of the best and worst films that have come out of that genre. Because it's such an expansive genre. There's just thousands upon thousands of movies and it's a toss-up, really, if they're good or bad. You don't really know until you're watching it. Some classics are kind of shitty now, and some horrible reviewed films are actually secret masterpieces. You never know with horror, and I think that's why it's such an interesting genre to pick at. But this won't be exclusive to just horror movies. Well, it kind of will for movies, but I'm also planning on doing kind of spotlights on the weirdest and most interesting shit to come out of Hollywood since the beginning of film. Just crazy stories. Uh, the Manson murders, the death of Natalie Wood, the poltergeist curse, Roman Polanski's rape charge and his flee to Switzerland. Just a few that come to mind. I'm going to be doing one a week. Wednesday is going to be the upload day, probably Wednesday night. And I'm very excited to be embarking on this new journey for Filmgasm. And I hope you find this as interesting and as fun as I do and continue to listen to the podcast and support the website. This is just something I love doing, and I really, really hope that I can try to reach some people, and, you know, I hope you get something out of this, too. Anyway, this is why we're here. The Shining. One of my all-time favorite horror films, and the only one I wanted to start this out with. Directed by Stanley Kubrick, starring Jack Nicholson... Shelley Duvall, Scatman Crothers, and it's so freaky and so unnerving. It's a masterpiece. And I'm going to give you some background on Stephen King's book, on the inspiration behind the story, on a bit of a bit of production, some of the issues, and just some fun facts. So, let's get started. <clears throat> Excuse me. The Shining was first published in 1977. It was Stephen King's third novel. It was influenced primarily from Stephen King's own struggles with alcoholism and addiction and a visit he had made to the Stanley Hotel in 1974. And I'll, I'll give you a little bit more info on the Stanley a little bit later. But King is probably my, he's my favorite author. I've read a good many of his books, including The Shining. And... There was a period of his career where it was just nothing but booze and coke. 
And oddly enough, the work is like the only thing that didn't suffer. Some of his best work came out of that Coke binge. Like, I remember reading that Cujo, a fantastic novel, decent movie. I'll probably do a, I might do Cujo down the road. But his desk had a thin film of coke powder, just cocaine, on the on his writing desk while he was writing writing Cujo. And to this day, he does not remember writing a word of that book. You imagine being so coked out of your fucking mind you don't remember writing an entire 300-page book? That's insane to me. Wait, I, <laughs> I can understand forgetting you read a book, but <laughs> writing a book... And that wasn't the only one. I think The Running Man was another one. These were just coke-fueled weekends that Stephen King had that led to some incredible stories. I wish I could do that. If I knew that taking exorbitant amounts of cocaine would lead to my best work as a writer, I would do nothing but cocaine all day. (laughs) But I digress. So, The Shining, published in 1977, and Stephen King did write a sequel to The Shining in 2013, Dr. Sleep, which I've also read and was very good. Uh, Definitely read it if you're a fan of The Shining. And uh, there's actually a film in the works uh, at the moment. I think it's set for uh, either a 2019 or a 2020 release. And Mike Flanagan, uh, up-and-coming horror director, uh, Oculus was one of his, Hush, Gerald's Game, so he's already got Stephen King cred. He's writing and directing, which is just perfect. And Ewan McGregor is set to star as a grown-up Danny Torrance. Dr. Sleep deals with Danny as a grown-up, dealing with the sins of his father and his time at the Overlook, giving him kind of a messed-up childhood, of course. And he's using his shine to kind of help elderly people pass on. And he meets this kid who has the most powerful shine of all time, and she gets targeted by this clan of gypsies who are kind of eating kids' shine. And it's really bizarre, but it's so good. It's such a great story, and I cannot wait to see the movie. And speaking of movies, Stephen King famously hated Kubrick's version of The Shining. He called it a uh, a big, beautiful Cadillac with no engine inside it. <laughs> and... King hated it so much, he went so far as to write and closely monitor his own remake. Uh, in 1997, there was a miniseries starring Stephen Weber from Wings as Jack Torrance, Rebecca De Mornay as Wendy Torrance, and Cortland Mead as Danny Torrance. And I've seen it, and it's not as menacing and scary and iconic as Kubrick's version but it does follow the story more closely. There's a lot more. Jack is more like he was in the book. And it's it's worth a watch. I mean, it's it's entertaining. You know, it's a miniseries, so it's on TV, so there's only so much they can do. But if you are a fan of the book and you want to see a more faithful adaptation, that's about as close as you're going to get. Uh, yeah, and since... Ever since getting screwed over by The Shining, the original one, King has really upped his demands for any involvement he's going to have in his adaptations. And so he just, he says, 
quote, I want a dollar, and I want approvals over the screenwriter, the director, and the principal cast. That is a tall order, but Stephen King is one of the few authors who could get away with doing something like that, because he's done so many incredible stories that he can he get he can do whatever he wants you know who's not going to want to adapt a Stephen King story and i think it's good for him to have a good level of involvement because otherwise you end up with like off the top of my head the dark tower which if this is true and he's been doing this since the 80s why was that film so bad i mean did Stephen King really let them take eight books and just smash them together into a piss-poor hour-and-a-half movie that completely ignores 98% of the source material? I, why? I mean, it can't be all about the money for Stephen King. It's not like he needs it. Guy turns out two to three books a year. Huge books. And he's, you know, his name is associated with some of the scariest and most iconic films and novels and TV shows in history. So it can't be financial for him. I mean, the guy's, you know, he's Stephen King. That's his name. So, I don't know. I, I'm i glad for him to have involvement in his stories, but, I don't know, The Dark Tower just seems like such a misfire for him to have been involved in it at all. Just, I don't get it. Uh... So, some of the major differences in Kubrick's The Shining versus the book, which pissed off Stephen King, are mainly how the film deals with the character of Jack. Now, in the book, Jack is not the villain. He's more of a symptom. He's he's a victim, really. The Overlook Hotel itself is the primary villain of The Shining, and it uses ghosts and possession to strike out at Danny because he's got the shine because he's powerful and uh, in Kubrick's version you get the feeling that Jack is already crazy before they even get to the hotel He's and I don't know if that's Kubrick's direction or if that's just Jack Nicholson because Jack Nicholson has that crazy look in his eye that just makes him unable to play a character like a loving father or you know, a decent human being, really. Most of his characters he's played over his career have been either scumbags or con men or villains or just kind of people who have something off about them. And while Jack in the book does suffer from alcoholism, he's a a little abusive, and he's not a good man by any sense of the word, but he is trying. And in the movie, he is not trying. And don't get me wrong, I love Jack Nicholson's performance in this movie. But it it's very different from what King intended. And I can understand being pissed off at that. I mean, I'm a writer myself. I've written three novels. And if they were adapted by an accomplished director, and that director decided to ignore most of the source material and put his own spin on things, I'd be upset too. Um, yeah, but Book Jack is far more sympathetic and... Spoiler alert, but, I mean, I probably could have said that at the beginning, but if you're listening to a podcast about The Shining, you sh- there's going to be spoilers. There's going to be spoilers for every video I put, in, I put out from here on out. So just be warned. But in the book and the miniseries, Jack gets a hold of his faculties and sacrifices himself to destroy the Overlook and save his family. He 
blows up the boiler and takes the whole hotel down. In the movie, Jack dies trying to kill Danny, just running, you know, through the hedge maze, freezing to death. And <laughs> it's it's very different. It's very different from what King intended. Uh, so, The Shining. Written and directed by Stanley Kubrick. Definitely a... I could devote an entire Filmgasm podcast to this guy because his career was insane. No, I, Every single film he did is considered a an iconic piece of film art, almost, from Fear and Desire all the way to Eyes Wide Shut. The guy just, he demanded the best, he expected the best, and he did not, he did not say cut until he got the best. And he was known for being difficult to work with, but the work speaks for itself. Uh, prior to The Shining, he had done Barry Lyndon in 1975, a Clockwork Orange, 1971, definitely a film gasm pick. We're going to do that down the road. 1968's 2001 A Space Odyssey and 1964's Doctor Strangelove. The Shining stars Jack Nicholson, which I've already mentioned. He's fresh off an Oscar win for 1975's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, an incredible film. And his turn as Jack Torrance remains one of horror's most frightening villains, simply because of Jack Nicholson's menacing snarl and this idea that you don't know when he snapped you don't know if he was crazy before he came there if he got crazy when he first showed up and that's kind of toyed with a little in the movie uh Shelley Duvall plays Wendy and prior to The Shining she had appeared in 1977's Annie Hall and a handful of TV shows and then Danny Lloyd who plays Danny Torrance, is now a biology professor at a community college in Kentucky. He gave up acting, I think, after one other film he did after The Shining. And while making The Shining, he had no clue he was making a horror movie. Which is hilarious, because Kubrick didn't want to hurt the kids psychologically. He, however, had zero issue doing the same to Shelley Duvall, as his treatment of her on the set left permanent psychological scars. She suffered from nervous exhaustion and hair loss on set as Kubrick was constantly berating her, saying, quote, you are wasting everyone's time. Jesus. I mean, he made everyone stay away from her. He would yell at her. He would just constantly berate her. And, yeah, she it screwed her up. I mean, it would, that would screw anybody up. And, you know, Kubrick being a perfectionist, he was probably you know, in his own way, trying to instill in Duvall, like, a sense of isolation and physical weakness to improve her performance and push it to her limits. But there is a line. And Kubrick, this was not the first time he had crossed that line. It's like, for example, uh, I've got a couple examples of Kubrick crossing the line here. On A Clockwork Orange, he found out Malcolm McDowell was terrified of snakes. Upon finding that out, he went and got a big-ass snake and threw it in the bed with Malcolm McDowell for a scene that really has nothing to do with a snake. There's just a snake there. It's it's kind of cruel. He That scene, in if you've seen A Clockwork Orange, there's a scene where Malcolm McDowell's character, Alex, is strapped down to a chair and his eyes are 
kind of held open by a claw. And they really did that to him. He Kubrick hired a an, an optometrist to you know numb his eyes to make sure he wouldn't get hurt. But he wasn't trying very hard because both of his corneas were repeatedly scratched from that scene, and he was nearly blinded. Malcolm McDowell's first movie or first major movie, and he was nearly blinded. He was also kicked for real in one of the scenes where Alex is um, attacked, and he suffered cracked ribs. And this was okay with Kubrick. It's just, it's crazy. On the set of Full Metal Jacket, he refused to let Matthew Modine leave the set to be with his wife during a difficult childbirth where she was going to have a C-section, and he was terrified. And he Kubrick only let Modine go when Modine threatened to cut his own hand open with a pocket knife so that he would be forced to go to the hospital. That's fucked up. Suffice it to say, Kubrick was a difficult man who demanded and expected only the best from every actor he ever worked with, and The Shining was no exception. Kubrick, I feel like he had very little empathy for anybody. Nothing mattered but the work. And with that mentality, he did produce quality work. I mean, I love pretty much 90% of his films. I'm not that big a fan of 2001 A Space Odyssey or Eyes Wide Shut. But that might just be me. I I need something to happen in a film to keep my interest. And I just I don't like it when it's just drawn out for the sake of being drawn out. And Kubrick was known for doing that, especially on 2001. And I get why it's a classic, but it's just not, it's just not my kind of film. Uh, funnily enough, uh, going back to Shelley Duvall, she today lives in the town I went to high school in, in uh, Blanco, Texas where she's somewhat of a local legend for her bizarre behavior. I've heard some stories from some friends of mine. One of them involved a friend of mine worked at the uh, local Sonic, and she drove up, and I I can't verify if this is true, but I wouldn't be surprised. She had her parrot order for her, and then when she drove up to the window, she threw glitter at my friend. I don't know if she drove off, or if she made the parrot grab her food, or what. But... You know, I personally, if she does have mental health problems, which I think she does, I think you can trace it back to The Shining. I mean, in an interview with Empire Magazine, Jack Nicholson called her performance, quote, the toughest job that any actor that I've seen had. That's that's pretty crazy coming from Jack Nicholson, who has done some incredible, uh, some incredible films with some incredible actors. And, uh... <laughs> I feel bad for Shelley Duvall. She just... She was good in The Shining. And I often wonder if she would have been as good if Kubrick hadn't, you know, decided to do what he did. But, you know, that's... We'll never know. Um, I'm not really going to cover the plot of The Shining in this, because... If you have seen it, you already know the plot. If you haven't seen it, I kind of don't want to spoil it for you. So, I mean, I already have, in a way, <laughs> certain, I think, the end of it. But getting there is half the fun. So, instead, I'm just going to probably focus for the rest of this on just backstory and some neat facts. And they're the best thing about The Shining are the crazy number of fan theories surrounding this film. Like, just bonkers shit. And... 
I think that the most famous one of these is the theory that The Shining is Kubrick's confession for his involvement in faking the moon landing. And conspiracy theorists point at uh, Danny's Apollo 11 sweater as proof. Quote, unquote. (laughs) Believe it or not, there are people out there who still think the moon landing was fake. And not only that, but the recording that everybody in America saw in 1969 was a film set supervised by Stanley Kubrick. You know, since he directed 2001 A Space Odyssey and was investigated by NASA for stealing state secrets because he got it too right, right about the time they were prepping the moon landing. And these are probably the same, you know, people who think the moon landing was fake are probably the same idiots who think the Earth is flat, who think the lizard people are controlling the world. It's just a crazy fucking rabbit hole that people just sink down and never escape from. It's crazy. I got a couple in my own family, and it's it's tough because you want to call them crazy, but you can't because you love them. And ugh. anyway, other evidence of this theory include some cans of Tang in the pantry. Tang was a drink that astronauts drank in space, and Kubrick changed the haunted room from 217 in the book to 237 in the movie because the moon is. 237,000 miles away from Earth. I'm not making this up. Despite the fact that that distance actually rounded down from a number that's closer to 238, but of course, facts and logic don't matter to these people as long as it fits the narrative. Uh, Another theory is that the film is about Native American genocide, from the Native American imagery decorating the hotel walls to the (laughs) baking soda cans in the pantry having the brand name Calumet, which I googled, and apparently it means peace pipe. And I, d- I don't see that. I mean, the yeah, the, in the film, the Overlook is built on a Native American burial ground, and that wasn't in the book. But I don't know. That just doesn't seem... It doesn't fit with a movie like this. This is a movie about childhood trauma and alcoholism and evil, really, and... I just, I don't, I think that's people reading into the background uh, set design more than anything else. Uh, one of my favorite theories. And this one is just so cool because I love the whole idea of a shared universe. And Stephen King was one of the first to make that happen. A lot of his stories take place in an interconnected universe. A lot of characters swap over from different stories. And a theory I, re- I saw on YouTube from the channel uh, The Film Theorists, check that out. It's that the Overlook Hotel evil, the kind of overarching demonic force, is Pennywise the Clown. Whoa! What? Yeah! Crazy shit, huh? So the theory is that Pennywise is not only the Overlook, but this dark force that represents almost every evil in Stephen King's stories. Randall Flagg, Christine, uh, Mrs. Carmody in The Mist, the creatures from The Mist. Just It's all this same shape-shifting darkness that is targeting kids who shine. And because the shine is a powerful thing. It's, you know, it's power incarnate, and this thing feeds on that. And... There's I don't there's kind of, there's proof to back this up and it 
during the ritual of Chewed, which it's a weird it's a weird book, but it's it's really great. The kids have a psychic connection to one another, kind of proving that they have their own shine, and that would kind of explain why Pennywise is after this particular group of kids. And the shine comes about through trauma. All of those kids are dealing with some dark shit. They're at, you know, abuse or a family tragedy or something. And Danny's no different. This his whole his power started to manifest when Jack accidentally dislocated his shoulder when he was drunk and he pulled him too hard. And the shine is a thing that's populated all over King's stories. Look at Carrie. You know, Carrie White was a psychic girl who was repeatedly abused by her psycho-religious mom and her mean-ass classmates. Could it be that Carrie's power is a shine? And it's just, it's a really cool theory to think that the Overlook Hotel was possessed by Pennywise in order to get Danny's shine. Just thinking about it that way is so cool. It's probably not at all what King intended, and it's definitely not what Kubrick intended. But it's a cool way to look at the movie. And to look at all of King's stories. You could even say like that every evil thing from Annie Wilkes to, you know, uh, Dolan in Dolan's Cadillac. That's an obscure one, but a great story in Nightmares and Dreamscapes. All of those bad guys are the same darkness, just in different forms. How neat is that? But I digress. Uh, For more info on crazy conspiracy theories from The Shining... Check out the uh, 2012 documentary Room 237, which really goes down the rabbit hole on uh, crazy interpretations about The Shining. Uh, And with that, I want to segue into the Stanley Hotel. So the Stanley Hotel is considered one of the most haunted hotels in America. It's in... uh, It's in Colorado, in the Rocky Mountains, and it is creepy. It's the the hotel that inspired The Shining. It looks like The Overlook. King stayed there, and he walked out with an idea that became The Shining. So, this is a description of the haunting in room 217 of the Stanley Hotel from an article that I found on TripSavvy.com. Whether or not this is true, I can't say, but... This is what it reads on that website regarding the haunting. Perhaps the most famed spot in the Stanley Hotel is room 217. This is where horror writer Stephen King spent the night and got the inspiration for his 1977 bestseller, The Shining. You can soak up the same Rocky Mountain views that King got when he stayed there. And added amenity, the room has a library of King novels. That is awesome. Owning it. You know, if you're going to be known as the hotel that inspired The Shining, own that shit and break in the tourist dollars, you know? Just, yeah, make it happen. Uh, When King and his wife arrived at the hotel, it was closing down for the season, and they were the only overnight guests staying there. They ate dinner in an empty dining room while pre-recorded orchestra music played before retreating to their room on the spacious and eerily empty second floor. So when King stayed there, the whole place was empty. (laughs) creepy King woke up that night to a terrifying dream about his three year old son being chased through the corridors and screaming King jerked out of bed realizing it was a dream and he lit a cigarette on the balcony and the plot for his now famous book started to shape up I don't know if this is a true 
haunting. I'm I've recently gotten a lot more skeptical about things like that. But even if not, I'm so glad he had that nightmare, or else we never would have gotten this incredible story and this incredible movie. Uh, so the haunting itself, the explanation for why this room is haunted, it's got some holes. Uh, or I'll explain it first. The room is thought to be haunted by Elizabeth Wilson, a.k.a. Mrs. Wilson. She was the hotel's head housekeeper, and during a storm in 1911, she was injured in an explosion as she was lighting the lanterns in room 217. She survived, though she broke her ankles, and her spirit seems to be irregular in the room. See, that's the part that I don't believe. Why would the ghost of somebody who didn't die be haunting this room? Like, that does not happen. Like, let's say, in my apartment right now, as I end this podcast, I stick my finger in an electrical socket and I, you know, get hurt, but I, I, I walk it off. And then I die 30 years down the road after I get hit by a bus. Am I going to haunt my apartment because I got electrocuted here once? No. Well, if anything, I'm going to haunt that bus. So I don't. I don't get it. I don't. I don't see it. I feel like people are just reaching because Stephen King had a nightmare in that room. So clearly, there's something up. Personally, I just think you know booze and coke gave the guy some night terrors. But uh, guests have reported items moved, luggage unpacked, lights being turned on and off. Oh, and this is good. Mrs. Wilson is old-fashioned. She doesn't like it when unmarried guests shack up together, so some couples have reported feeling a cold force come between them. And uh, one of the biggest myths about the room is that it's never available, and that's not true. You can book it and stay there if you dare. And I'm going to, yeah, if I'm ever in Colorado, I'm going to go to the Stanley. I'm going to stay in room 217. And <laughs> that's hilarious. This, this ghost... This all-powerful force in this room, otherworldly, you know, demonic presence, doesn't like it if you're not married. So instead of like you know killing both of you, it's just gonna kind of move in between you two and make some room for God. That's that's hilarious. I don't. Know, I I think it's bullshit after reading about this. But you know what? I say that now. But if I was in that room, I'd probably feel something too. I'd probably think, oh, it's cold in here or some shit. Because, you know, of course you're brave when you're not there, but <laughs> I don't know. Uh, okay, so I'm going to end here with uh, what is probably going to be my favorite segment of all of these, Filmgasm Facts. So IMDb is filled with weird trivia and fun facts about every film ever made. So in this seg- segment... I seek out the ones that I think are the funniest, the weirdest, or just the most bonkers, and share them with you. And a lot of it is, you know, actors' birthdays or something, but sometimes there are just weird-ass stories and really interesting stuff. And here are some of those. Number one, Stanley Kubrick considered Robert De Niro and Robin Williams for the role of Jack Torrance, but decided against them. Kubrick did not think De Niro would suit the role after watching his performance in Taxi Driver, as he deemed De Niro not psychotic enough for the role. He didn't think Williams would suit the role after watching his performance on Mork and Mindy, as he deemed him too psychotic for the role. (laughs) 
That's great. Robin Williams was too crazy to play Jack Torrance. And um, according to Stephen King, Kubrick also briefly considered Harrison Ford. And I don't see it. I can kind of see De Niro playing a character like this. We kind of saw, you know, something. He played a psycho later on in Cape Fear. And Robin Williams played one in Insomnia, but not a Jack Torrance level psycho. But I just love the fact that Kubrick saw Robin Williams and Mork and Mindy and went, oh, hell no. I'm not making somebody that crazy. <laughs> oh, I love it. Uh, number two. After Barry Lyndon in 1975, Stanley Kubrick started researching his next project by reading a lot of recent books. So, every movie Kubrick ever made was based on an existing property, be it a book or a short story or a novella. He just he liked to adapt as opposed to writing his own thing, which is fine. His films were great. Uh, but while he was doing his research, his secretary could hear him throwing rejected books at the wall in his office. Just... Boom. Boom. Just, you know, what the hell is this? I'm not, I'm never making this movie. Boom. <laughs> it's great. And then one day, he started reading Stephen King's novel, The Shining, and after a few hours, when his secretary hadn't heard the familiar sound of a book hitting the wall, she knew he had found his next project. I wonder if that's just something he did for The Shining, or if he, he always did that. Like, what, was, what after The Shining, it was uh, Full Metal Jacket, I think. Was he just... Back in his office, another pile of books. It's like, I want to do a war movie, but not this one. Boom. Nope, this is shit. Boom. Ooh, this is cool. And then we got Full Metal Jacket. I love to think that he has done that ever since he started making movies. It's so much fun to think that way. Uh, number three. The Shining was the first of Stephen King's books to be banned from school libraries because of the theme of wicked parents. <laughs> Can't have kids reading books about wicked parents. They might get ideas. <laughs> what the hell is that? Dude, most books about, you know, involving kids have to deal with wicked parents. I mean, look at Roald Dahl. You know, famous kids author. Look at Matilda. Terrible fucking parents. You tell, Matilda, was that banned in, in books? I mean, in uh, schools? I don't know. Just, you know, serious unfortunate events. It's all about a bad, you know, bad guardians. I don't know. That just seems like a stupid reason to ban a book. I think they were just, you know, I mean, I can understand you know, the horror aspect of it, you know, the darkness, the evil, but wicked parents, and they're not even bad parents in the book. I mean, yeah, Jack's, you know, he's a drunk, but he's, you know, he's on the wagon. He's trying, you know, he didn't mean to hurt Danny that one time. And Wendy's a good mom. She's doing her best. So I don't think that's fair. Uh, whatever. Um, number four. Stephen King has never understood why people find this movie so scary. <laughs> of course he wouldn't. What the hell scares the master himself? I would love to know what Stephen King finds scary. Because it's, I don't know if that's him just hating this movie and refusing to give it the time of day. But The Shining is a scary fucking film. It's unnerving as shit and I don't know I remember reading somewhere that Stephen King said the scariest book he ever wrote was Pet Cemetery because of the subject matter you know dead kids and all that and I can understand that being taboo and unsettling for him but I don't know The Shining not being scary that's that's just funny 
Uh, number five. Despite his reported abuse of Shelley Duvall on set, Stanley Kubrick spoke very highly of her ability in interviews and found himself quite impressed by her performance in the finished film. So it wasn't personal, it was business. And Kubrick apparently hadn't, he didn't see any problem with what he did to her mentally. He was just like, oh yeah, she was great. Wonderful film, yeah. We worked really good together. Whereas she's tearing her hair out and making parrots order food for her. Like, oh, I just feel so bad for her. Just, oh, she could have had such a great career. And she she had some, you know, good roles, but she never took off like she could have, I think, because The Shining really, really fucked her up. And <laughs> number six, this blows my mind. Despite the critical success of the film, The Shining was nominated for two Razzie Awards. Worst Actress for Shelley Duvall and Worst Director for Stanley Kubrick. It lost both awards. But the balls on the Razzie Awards to give The Shining Worst Director and Worst Actress. That's fucking... Oh, that's bullshit. If you're not familiar with the Razzie Awards, they're basically the... Oscars for shit films. <laughs> and they have them every year. They give out a Golden Raspberry Award to the worst picture, worst actor, worst director. And just to put give you some perspective on the kind of films that win these awards, this past year, the winner of worst picture was Holmes and Watson, the disaster that Will Ferrell and John C. Riley released around Christmas last year. That went nowhere and was like the worst reviewed film in both their careers. And in the annals of Razzie history, The Shining is in there. That pisses me off. It does not deserve any of that shit. Like, (laughs) I don't... Yeah. Well, that's my take on The Shining. One of horror's shiniest (laughs) gems. Just a true masterwork of horror. And... At Filmgasm, whenever I review a movie, I give it a 1 out of 10 score. 1 being an absolute dumpster fire, and 10 being a movie filmed by God himself. So at the end of every video that's about a specific movie, not you know just an event or a situation, I'm going to give the film my score and explain why it deserves that score. So here we go. The Shining gets a 10. You heard it here. A 10 out of 10. I have adored this film since I started watching horror. I find something new to be unnerved by it every time I watch it, and it never gets old. This past uh, most recent watch, apparently Kubrick had the set designer move furniture around in between takes so that you would always feel like something's not right. That's brilliant, and it works. And, you know, I love when I found out that the the layout of the hotel makes zero sense because they had to have Danny be able to, you know, ride his little big wheel you know down the hallways and constantly make turns but there are hallways that don't go anywhere and it's that sense of architecture that really makes you feel like something's not right about this place and that's even before the ghosts start showing up and just you know the fact that you learn something new every time is a sign of a great movie and the shining is most certainly that and i'm very glad i chose that one to start this whole wild ride with uh, well, that's it, really. Um, thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this new format as much as I did. If you want to see more from Filmgasm, you can check out my YouTube channel for weekly videos every Wednesday on the dot, as well as my website, www.filmgasm.com, and my social media, 
I'm on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. You'll see. Like you can go there for updates on reviews, podcasts. Uh, we started doing articles again, and any I'm going to be uploading any sort of cool movie news or trailers that I feel like mentioning. I think most recently today, uh, I'm recording this on uh, Friday, March 1st, and on the Red Band trailer for Hellboy just dropped. I gotta admit, the first trailer did not get me excited. I was feeling very kind of upset that Guillermo del Toro and Ron Perlman didn't get to make their Hellboy 3, but after seeing the second trailer, I gotta say, I, I'm getting excited about Hellboy again. I think David Harbour could do a great job, and... The fact that it's rated R, I think, is going to really bring home a Hellboy we haven't seen before. And I'm excited. Um, So if I haven't already, uh, I am planning on putting the podcast on iTunes just as soon as I figure out how to make that happen. I mean, while I'm recording this, you know, while you're listening to this next Wednesday, this could already be on iTunes. I don't know. I'm going to try to figure that out tomorrow and on Sunday. But until then, you'll be able to find this episode and everyone after it on YouTube and, of course, the website, Filmgasm.com. It's Filmgasm with a Z. And after I get them on iTunes, I'm still going to put them on YouTube and the website. So no worries either way. Thanks again for sticking with me, and I hope I was able to give you a sweet, rocking Filmgasm. And if not, come by next Wednesday, and I'll try again. Thanks for stopping by.